Good evening, and welcome back to All About Ovid. That's all with an O, about with an O, Ovid with an O. I am B. Peterson, your host, and with me as always is... I am Whitney Seibold, a film critic extraordinaire, and Mm. happy to be delving into the artiest of the art, uh, as it were. Yes. This is this is all about Ovid. This is our podcast dedicated to not the Greek poet, but to the streaming service Ovid.tv, where you can find such films as well, what we're talking about today. We're five like we keep we keep referencing like, oh yeah, these movies that are like five and a half hours and they come from the Philippines. We're talking about that movie today. Hooray. Um, it's, it's it's the art house of art house cinema. It's experimental stuff. It's shorts from around the world. This is this is the lovely stuff we get to talk about, and it's whatever we want to talk about that happens to be on Ovid, because this is not a structured, this is not a, a, a rigid podcast, this is just, what did we see? Let's talk about it. Yeah, and uh, as, as I come from a, a, another podcast network where we always, at the start of every episode, promise to go short, and we always go long. Uh, and I think that happened with our first episode, B, uh, where yeah. we decided we we were going to just sort of like speed through a few, and we ended up going on for quite some time. Uh, oh, but it's fine. Because it, <laughs> we were talking about awesome fine. films. Uh, yeah, yeah, we're talking about Cheryl Dunye and uh, the ear- early experimental shorts, and we got to talk about Siming Liang, and I, I was just having a wonderful time. So yeah, uh, we get to come um, back, and we get to do it again. Yeah, and I think it it is of us, we are behooved to open by talking about perhaps one of the most epic films I have ever seen, the Look at My Potato short film. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Mark Edward Hoyk uh, shouted us out, and he said, sadly, you won't be reviewing this film, and it was the movie phone commercial for... Um, the well, it was a commercial for Movie Phone, and it was a parody of a Kazakhstan, a film from Kazakhstan called "Look at My Potato." I I remember the "Look at My Potato" ads, and uh, <laughs> here here's the funny thing about "Look at My Potato." Uh, they they are speaking Russian, uh, and it's it's all completely accurate. Uh, my sister speaks Russian, so she could speak to its accuracy. And in the short, it's an old man who has fallen into such a deep pit of despair. That all he can do is sit at his table and look at a potato. And the title of the film is Look at My Potato. Right. Uh, Bellatar would go on to remake this film into The Turin Horse. I, I was going to point out that very thing. That there's actually a, an important plot point in Bellatar's film The Turin Horse. Where they have to sort of dig through the characters in the movie. have to dig through the dirt and find potatoes. And that's like the last bit of life on Earth. According mm. to sort of the, the milieu of this movie. Yeah, that that film is. It took me two or three attempts to get through that, just because of how depressingly, trudgingly slow that was. Like I can handle slow cinema. Like I mean, mm-hmm. we're talking about it today, but but that film was just so. It wasn't just slow. It was it was daring you to, to turn it off. And for the first couple times, I did fall asleep or, or this. But yeah, um, as, as, you pointed, as you pointed out recently on one of your podcasts, it's, it's a movie where someone eats a potato and the sun goes out. Um. <laughs> I, I, need a, I need a t-shirt that says that. It says, I, yes. I love films where 
people eat a potato and yeah, the sun my goes ta- out. When people ask me, what's your taste in film? I say movies with a, <laughs> where you, if people eat a potato and the sun goes out. <laughs> but uh, speaking of Bellatar and super long cinema, uh, we're talking about... Why don't we start off with this film that you were you you were you mentioned this on your last episode of what you were looking as uh, for your up next on mm-hmm. Ovid, and and you you started watching it. And I was like, you know what, I kind of have to see it because I I, I really <laughs> want to see it too. And I and I made a night of it. I got through it in mostly one sitting. I had to take a couple breaks just like bathroom or water. Um, it, uh, but it, it it took me. I have to admit, it took me three sittings. Three, okay. three, se- three separate times where I had to turn it off and turn it back on again to get through this film because it is of prodigious length. Yes. Uh, the first film we're going to be talking about today is Love Diaz's 2014 film, which runs a whopping five hours and 40 minutes. Um, it's from what is before. Uh, this is... And this is not even Love Diaz's uh, longest film. Not even Love close. Di- no, no. Love Diaz uh, is is a filmmaker that uh, I was introduced to by, and we mentioned him on the last episode, Mr. Dave White, who uh, is a big fan of slow cinema, and he's very enervated by a lot of experimental, interesting new ways to tell stories from uh, sort of this area of the world. Uh, yeah, Love Diaz, I think his longest film... Uh, is almost 10 hours in length. Right, yeah. Uh, his most famous movie might be um, Norte, The End of History, which came out shortly before this one that we're talking about now. Uh, and That one's pretty short. Uh, co- comparatively, I think Norte, The End of History is like yeah, I just saw the under three hours. Um that's that's a walk in the park (laughs) it's it's four hours and ten minutes which is still nothing (laughs) pretty short for uh for love diaz um and love diaz is uh known if for any if he's known for anything is for these incredibly long movies where uh he just sort of sets the camera down uh, usually outdoors he films in this really glitteringly gorgeous black and white photography and mm-hmm. lets the action play and uh, in this film in particular he tends to put the camera down in front of a landscape or some outdoor scene most of this film takes place outdoors and we hear the wind sort of blowing through or we hear rain falling and very very slowly a character will appear somewhere in the frame and walk through it so the humanity is like just another living aspect of this natural vista this gorgeous mm-hmm. natural vista that he's he's uh filming um but yeah like a lot of people say with like new york is a character man or like the setting is a character <laughs> in this love ds film literally the landscape the nature around these characters is really the main character because it gets mm. more screen time than any of the, <laughs> any of the people well and and you know the the people inside of it are the ones that are kind of they li- it's not that they're necessarily living in harmony with it like he's not making some kind of statement as to the beauty of the natural world uh they're being pushed around by it they're they're being forced into weird positions and their entire emotional state is being informed by it uh and uh so we are appreciating the beauty of the place but uh, we're also in this very herzogian fashion uh 
learning about how forbidding it really is as well, like simultaneously. I love that. Yeah. And, and, but this film isn't a nature documentary. Let's point out this out because this film from what is before is actually, there's, I mean, there, there's not a ton of plot, but there is some very significant plot. This is a, <laughs> this is a specifically a tale of the Ferdinand Marcos, uh, uh, occupation essentially when he employed martial law in 1972 and it's specifically about this one community um this one small community in the philippines um that is basically over the course of this this monster monstrous runtime is collapses it entirely the to decays to the point where there is no community left and and it is a commentary about like at one point then there is a narrator who appears maybe two or three times throughout the film and he he calls it this is a memory of a cataclysm um and and that is what we're seeing and it's it's a it's a place that is crumbling not just from from external forces but also from within uh from this this just the these people who inhabit this place as they um i mean it's not like this uh, uh, it's not like there's no damning of any specific characters outside of maybe one, but um, it's just about these people and how they struggle and s- they fail and they try to be decent despite their failures. And it's, mm. it's just this, it's enervating, uh, which you'd think would mean like, you know, really energizing, but it really just, it just kind of just puts you back and just kind of seeps away your, it just it just lulls you into throughout this entire this entire film of just people are people hurt each other even though they try to help each other sometimes and it's just and, and this and it's and it's gorgeous and it's beautiful mm-hmm. and yeah, and it's yeah. melancholic and and it's stark and and adjective adjective proper <laughs> the uh well the, the film that it reminded me most of was i'm not sure if you've ever seen uh, michael haneke's film the white ribbon right uh, it's mentioned in is a several as like this is kind of a com- almost like a companion piece um yeah, i haven't yeah. seen it the only two haneke films i've seen are um funny games the 97 version and amour which both Ooh, just fun times at the movies uh, uh, <laughs> uh yeah the, 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 that's a party um <laughs> The, the White Ribbon is uh, Michael Haneke's sort of take on the rise of fascism, I suppose. But mm-hmm. it takes place in this really, really small German village where there aren't any fascists yet. And what we see is little tiny infractions against neighbors. Uh, these little tiny pranks that people play on each other, little resentments. Uh, kids being you know shamed into uh, wearing these white ribbons, which are ribbons of shame. Uh, are sort of forces the entire community into subtly oppressing one another. It's kind of an origin story of the way fascism tends to operate. Uh, mm. It's an excellent movie. And from what is before, it does very much the same thing. It sort of lives within this tiny community. We kn- And just like in The White Ribbon, we know there's this encroaching militaristic fascism coming. And... You know, as as an audience, the audience, we don't really understand how that's going to affect this community. And what Lav Diaz seems to be saying is, it was almost this general, broad epoch of human weakness 
that led to not just the rise of fascism, but kind of these tiny resentments within the community that lead to its eventual dissipation. Uh, and in giving us such a long running time, we get to see that happening much more effectively than I think we would if we were, um, if this were a more conventionally lengthed movie. Yeah, uh, it's it's one of the things that you think about when you're watching, because you have the time, when you're watching a, an incredibly long film, is why did this film need to be this long? And mm-hmm. you sometimes there's an answer and sometimes there's not. Um, something that we talk about frequently on Fresh from the Margins with Anna is how we watch a lot of, you know, 80-minute movies. And whenever we get around to, like, an hour 50 long movie then a lot of times we talk about this movie did not to be this this didn't need to be 100 minutes this could have been 80 this could have been 75 and mm. and this film that we're watching here there is easily easily a 3 or even 2 hour cut of this film that has all of the plot and and still maintains that um maintain you still would understand all of the beats mm. however the reason that this movie is so long is because if you cut it down to three or two hours, what you would leave on the cutting room floor would be the life of this village. It would be the people going about their lives. And by cutting, by leaving all that in, you not only see them making, you know, plot decisions or see them interacting, you also see them just thinking. And you get to see the landscape around them existing and you realize that they're that it's not all about you know uh characters deciding whether or not they're going to expose a truth of some character or Mm -hmm. it's going to be will i make this decision it's you're going to see them go about their day and everything besides and that's that's what's that's what i think is what is so powerful about this film is it's not just a tale of fascism and a tale of 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 human of human uh, weakness. It's also a tale of of just existing. And I and I for one thought it was I had a splendid time just watching people exist and watching mm-hmm. nature exist. It's I I this is this is my jam, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we we got we got to know them because we were living with them, not because that they're they're telling us their decisions we did get to see them who they are and why they make those decisions yeah. uh, that was just sort of to to break down some of the main plot points uh what i love about slow cinema and of which love diaz is pretty much the the forerunner uh, is it dares to not engage at all moments mm-hmm there's this idea, especially in the United States, I think, uh, that films need to sort of grab you. They need to be entertaining. I've heard a lot of critics, even critics I really admire, say something along the lines of, it's worse to be bored by a movie than it is to hate a movie. And right. I, I don't really agree with that. I'd much rather watch uh, a boring movie than a terrible one. <laughs> You know, I'd, I'd I'd rather watch something that I'm just gonna kind of forget about and not have anything in my mind about than watch, say, like another human centipede film. You know, these these things that, that's that's a really easy decision for me. But uh, the idea that you can just sort of be in a film for a while and take a little bit of a break from action or plot, uh, 
scenes where we can either admire just something that looks nice or where we can listen to dialogue that sounds nice that has nothing to do with actually moving the plot or characters forward. We can just have a conversation. Films that dare you to slow yourself yourself down, that encourage you to stop breathing so heavily and just sort of rest backwards and fall into essentially kind of a cinematic meditative state uh, right. that that I really admire. Because if I can get there, then I'm in, I'm, I'm in heaven. I'm, it's blissful. Mm-hmm. It, yeah, it really is. And, and while you're in that meditative state, you're then also taking in all of the character work mm. and the plot as it comes along. And by the end of this film, there is a scene um, where two characters that one of which was our main so we have we have essentially uh, uh i would say four main characters we have these two sisters itong and yoselina um yoselina is um some degree of mentally or physic and or physically handicapped and it's about them trying to get by and um and then we also have uh Jacob and sorcito his guardian um, Jacob is this little boy, and and these are our four main characters, and there are other characters besides. But by the end of the film, all but Cercito have exited the picture in some form or another. They have mm. they have left, and it's pretty much just Cercito left in this village that is decayed thanks to the occupation by by Marcos. And another one of the characters who we've seen like maybe three or four times, who we we learned at one point that he had lived here when he was a child and he came back after 40 years. And he they he shows up while Cercito is, is uh, harvesting a rice paddy and they just talk for about, I don't know, 10 or 15 minutes. And you realize that over the course of this past five hours and 15 minutes of movie, that there has been all of these ideas. And when they finally just talk about them and, and it's, it's, it's so incredibly emotional <laughs> and you're just like, Oh my word, the power in this moment. And, and what this, this man has to say and how he's, and how at a loss he is and how he's at, realizes he at the, he's at the end of his days and how, what is, what does this all matter? And you're just, Oh, it's, it's worth it to get through all of this movie. Not just, just because you'll see a ton of gorgeous, gorgeously framed uh, uh, photography or, or some beautiful acting. But at the end of it, you realize that you've had a Holy spirit, almost spiritual experience. And, and then it has that, and then it gets to you know the ending, which is which shows you the extent of the horror that has gone unseen, and now it is seen, and it's brutal, and it, yeah, the, yeah. The, and in fact, like the the last two, like the last two or three seconds of this right, movie is strange, it, surreal. It's, it's it's surreal, but it, it it's almost like life is going to defy death in those last few seconds it's uh, yeah like, i, I so, was wondering i, w- I was gonna ask you about those last two or three seconds uh, mm-hmm. like you know spoilers or whatever we're gonna talk about <laughs> I'd, I'd like to talk about those last two or three seconds because mm-hmm. and i'll maybe put in timestamps or something in the description just like skip over this bit or skip ahead two minutes or something so in the last scene we've got you know this guy hanging um he's being tortured and he's seemingly dead. And then 
right before the camera cuts to black, he gets up. <laughs> like, yeah. he, he just, he straightens up and he's like, ah. And I'm like, did we just see the moment after the director called cut? Like, what, what was that? <laughs> uh, it, it seemed to me because, um, yeah, this, this was a, a movie about how the military uh, dictatorship in the Philippines began back in the early 70s, how Marcos essentially declared himself a dictator and was in power for, uh, almost, I think it was almost 15 years before he was finally ousted. And I remember this from when I was a kid, when uh, when Marcos was ousted and how he was this uh, subject of worldwide mockery once he was ousted. Uh but yeah, it, it is about how uh, this community is not just sort of dissipating because of its uh, some of its own um, own in- internal turmoil, but how it's sort of the entire country has been infected and how the military dictatorship destroyed a lot of these things. And indeed, military uh, people went to these tiny remote barrios to insist everybody pledge allegiance to Marcos, even though these are like tiny villages that haven't been touched for literally, literally generations. And indeed there's a, a scene earlier where somebody talks about how they don't want a military presence. They actually don't even need the roads fixed anymore. They've been doing okay. Now, if you yeah, want to help us, we don't even use this a... bridge that you're talking about. Fixing yeah. It's up. Like, we're we're going to fix the bridge. We, we don't use that bridge. We've made do. It's been too long. Give us some electricity. If you want to help us, uh, and yeah, it's about how the military kind of move in and just essentially start torturing and killing people. And we get to see that in, in some pretty explicit detail right at the film's end. And the character they're torturing, uh, Father Guido, is mm-hmm. the one who seems to be savvy to all of the uh, the ins and outs, all of the spiritual uh, cracks that have formed in, this, in the facade of this community. Mm-hmm. And, and also he's maybe the most aware of the political situation of the people mm. living in this community. He's the, he is the one who name checks Marcos in the film. Yeah. Um, yeah. Long well, before that... like we hear him on the radio, we hear him like talk to the Lieutenant. Um, just like, do you believe in Marcos? And <laughs> yeah, he's, yeah, he's clearly aware. Um, so yeah, he, he is. And yeah, so he's the one who is uh, essentially targeted uh, by the military, and he is the one who uh, is. We get to see in some pretty pretty horrendous pain, and he is the one who is going to defy that. He's the one who is essentially saying that in in living, there's this sort of spiritual dimension to his survival. That there is something that is still alive about these places, and I think Lav Diaz is essentially uh, writing an elegy. I mean, the title of the film is From What Is Before, uh, and I find that an interesting wording. It's not from what was before, the thing that is lost, the thing that is left behind. It it seems to have uh, this idea that the past is something very active, and this is what was destroyed, this entire community, and this is how it seemed to uh, crumble and decay. It's It's a film about entropy, but I think it's also very much a film about this kind of bitter survival of memory that allows these things to persist yeah um if i have one issue with from what is before i i think it would be the treatment of Hosolina is i think at i i i'm not sure i totally i i it sat well with me um because mm-hmm. like she at one point um is the victim of sexual assault and later it's revealed that that was a frequent occurrence 
I, I, it's the one aspect of the film is like, I'm not sure I totally, if this sits right with me, this treatment of her, it feels almost mm. maybe a bit even too cruel for this film. I I I'm I'm not really sure though. Like I understand all of the decisions that were made um as to why this was her arc and it's about like the exploitation of of these people and of 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 people who who you know can't necessarily speak or fight for themselves, but mm. if there was if that was one thing it'd be warning is just like it it does that that is pretty a uh, uh, sh- shocking. <laughs> yeah, it's, more it, than the it, violence. It it's it's definitely very rough, and uh, there there's I, I think Love Diaz is saying you know he's he's pointing out that there there are some horrible people here too. It wasn't that this was this mm-hmm. beatific ideal that the military kind of broke up. It's that no, there was actually some pretty horrible things here, and this is sort of some people had to do some pretty strange things to survive and some people were not surviving they were just committing crimes some people were were suffering as well and you know there there were perpetrators and there were victims uh long long before the military ever got involved and uh, i i think i think it was really why in in a weird way i think it was wise of him to include the the fact that there are some pretty horrible people in this community and that they are committing crimes and that some people are indeed being victimized. Uh, and I think he very wisely keeps the camera off of that. We, we get to see some pretty rough scenes, but he's not glorifying in, in the suffering of, of the individuals. Uh, he's actually sort of placing them back into the broader landscape. If that, if that makes any sense. Um, I'm, I haven't seen uh, Belatar's film Satan Tango. I haven't had the the temerity to step up to Satan Tango yet, uh, but I do know there is a scene in that film um, with a cat. Uh, yeah, with a cat, where a, a young girl has a scene with a cat, and the the cat doesn't turn out very well. And from what I understand, it's filmed pretty explicitly. Um, the cat was not harmed. <laughs> I have to say that right away. The cat was the cat is fine, but it was filmed in such a way where it looks like the cat is is a uh, suffering pretty badly and uh just sort of the idea of putting the camera right next to a suffering uh, person or a suffering animal or a, just what seems like actual human suffering is always going to be really really rough and we have to question the ethics of that if the filmmaker is trying to say something are they confronting us or are they uh or, or are they being sensationalistic about it? And I feel like Love Diaz is indeed trying to work this into a greater tapestry of pain. Uh, that said, I'm not going to force anybody to watch that that scene if they don't want to. If it sounds really disturbing, don't don't watch it. Don't watch that. Mm-hmm. Don't watch the scene. Skip over that part. But I would want I would want to encourage people to see the movie as a whole because yes. this is actually a really beautiful work of art and yeah. i'm so happy to have finally gotten a taste of love diaz and if i ever have a chance to you know carve out 10 hours out of my day then i'll definitely <laughs> sit down with some of his longer films uh, like i think evolution of a filipino family might be his longest one that's the one that's nearly 10 hours in length yeah. um and i want to see his melancholia uh which i've heard not not to be confused with Lars von Trier's film uh that I've heard a lot of really fantastic things about. And that one's like 450 minutes. Like these things are really, really, really long, 
but I now have a really good understanding as to what he does, why he does it, and the kinds of things that he's interested in. And uh, right, and yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, I mean, sorry. Go ahead. No, I was just gonna say is like these are these are long films. I just want to point out, I was never bored while watching this film. Like you, mm. you, you. We talked earlier about I'd rather watch a boring film than a bad film. This is neither of those things. This is just oh. a very good film and an and and. Uh, Maybe per not maybe not like an actively engaging one, but a very uh, uh, a welcoming one, and and so yeah, there. See it. <laughs> it's on mm. Ovid. Watch it. <laughs> yeah, it's unfortunately the only Lav Diaz film that's on Ovid. Right. Um, I, I imagine they'll get more at some point. That'd be nice. I think. I think last year at some point they had another one on there. Because um. um, like you put, didn't you put like a a. A Lav Diaz film on one of your like streaming club polls that was a shorter uh, film. No, this was the one. Uh, the, oh, okay. This, I, I, uh, I, we were putting uh, some Ovid films on some of our polls over at, uh, over at the critically acclaimed network, and yeah, yeah and that's on... how I got you guys to watch the Waterwellen Woman. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and and I put on from what is before, and I put on Rebels of the Neon, Neon God. So I got to the ones I wanted now. Uh, <laughs> And yeah, and, and William, my co-host, he just really, really rolled his eyes because he did not want to watch a five and a half hour film. But, you know, <laughs> I would have been happy to force him through this one. Uh, yeah, I, I and I think that he probably. I mean, who's to say he might not have enjoyed it? But I think he probably would have. I I think this movie's great, and I think he probably would have had a had a good time with it. Yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, um, so yeah, that's that's from what is before. Um, what is, what, what, you, you saw, you saw something, um, or actually, hold on, I've got, I've got two more things that I've seen, and you have one, so I'm gonna quickly yeah. talk about, um, what I, something yeah, that I saw. Tell me what you saw. Okay, so I watched, um, I watched the film, it was something that I mentioned that I was gonna try and get to, um, I watched Ambulance. Um, this is a 2016 documentary, uh, from Palestine. Um, from director Mohammed Jabali, and it is a documentary about um, this um, this this man Mohammed, who was he was in the middle of or he was just starting to make a documentary about uh, the inner workings of a hospital in Palestine, um, when he happened to capture um, the first uh, uh, bombings of Gaza back in 2014, because back in 2014 Israel bombed. Uh, uh, the Gaza Strip for 51 days mm. and and he was just happened to be in the hospital when the first bombs hit and he said hey can I go with the ambulance and what happened is is over the course of the film we see him essentially grow close with this ambulance crew as they go out and try and rescue people um, and it's a sen- and it's and what we have is essentially three stories we have the story of of the ambulance crew and uh, them on the process of going and trying to save people's lives or if they can't do that, just recover the bodies. Um, and and all of the downtime that they have in between because a lot of the times it's just them cleaning out the ambulances, um, cleaning out the rubble and the blood and the bones. And, and we have that story. We also have the story of Muhammad who is at one point like just he is completely overwhelmed and turns the camera off because he cannot stand to see this mass suffering and it's about his own journey with you know trying to 
trying to uh, stay safe and to balance his this be- be- between this documentation and being there with his family. Um, and we never see this guy's face, and yet we get to know him quite well. And then it's also the story of these people who are these crowds of people who are being displaced and and murdered and for no discernible reason like it's that this film isn't about like all of the political ins and outs of this bombing it's just about these people trying to survive they'll get texts maybe 30 seconds before their bomb saying get out of the house we're about to bomb this this residence and and some of them a lot of them are prank texts that they're getting from from israeli numbers and some of them are real and so it's just this constant state of terror and it's also this constant state of communities coming together to grieve and to like we see in hospitals just crowds of people just gathering around those who have just lost family members or it's communal grief and 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 suffering and it's it's really difficult and powerful to watch i mean the what we see in this film we see kids who are playing on the beach like they just they were bombed while playing on the beach in broad daylight we see the ambulance crew get bombed in real time we and which you know almost kills one of the ambulance um uh one of the 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 first responders we see them we see the aftermath of them bombing a church and and so it's it's these horrible horrifying things that we're witnessing and and it's not trying to put it into political context it's just trying we're on i'm in this ambulance we're going and we're trying to save people and mm. and that's pretty much it it's it's an hour and 18 minutes and it's intimate and it's terrifying and and it gives us an insight into what might be happening right now um mm. because we are once again at a place where Israel and Palestine conflict is arising and there's a lot of people inclined to say oh it's really complicated and I'm not one to get into it and I'm I'll be the first to say I don't know the ins and outs of this conflict I'm not the I should mm. no way be an authority but it but these are people who are getting bombed and and that that human aspect of is it should not be ignored and so i i I think that everyone should see this film just if you to to jumpstart your empathy if if you don't already have any and if you don't then then Mm. please please watch this Uh, yeah i I was i was about to point out this sounds awfully timely doesn't it um yeah given what has been going on uh in israel and palestine uh, over the course of like just the last few days, uh, so I'm I'm not sure if you chose to watch this. Um, well, I mean, because of that, I, I I know it's been going on for a while. Just what's been in the news for the last couple of days. Uh, yeah, if you chose to watch this because of that, or if it was just a complete coincidence. Um. Well, I think what ha- is Ovid. You know, I think on their like Twitter account said is like this. By the way, we're playing this right now. Um maybe consider watching it and so that that's what put it on my radar initially um Mm. i i also want to point out um look if you look up there's a palestinian filmmaker um alaya suleiman i'm forgive me if i'm mispronouncing that um he is um one of the one of the greats in terms of 
of of Middle Eastern cinema, and um, he is streaming his entire filmography for free um, as of May twenty third for um, for one week. I think um, he's going to be streaming. Uh, you can. Uh, a video it'll hmm. be they'll be streaming on video on demand style from may 21st to 30th um for for free so if i i'd recommend going out and seeking seeking those out if you have the time okay. um so and yeah in the there's a link in in the the article where you can register for for to to get access to those films so yeah it's timely um, and so I I felt obligated to watch it, and I'm and I'm glad I did because it gave me some insight into the situation which I wouldn't have otherwise. Oh God, yeah. Um, golly, I feel so frivolous for not having watched it. Goodness sake. Well, I mean, it's we only have so much time um, hmm. in the day, and and you <clears throat> you of all people are, are are quite quite busy. But but if if you can spare the time, it's 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 worth witnessing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, uh, uh, you watched The Devil in the Flesh. <laughs> so yeah, I, I watched a 1986 Italian film called Devil in the Flesh, which uh, is has nothing to do with um, anything topical, I suppose. Uh, Devil in the Flesh, I remember when it came out uh, and how notorious it was. I remember all of the negative reviews. I remember all of uh, the notoriety it gained and how a lot of people were afraid to watch watch it because, and there's just one scene where there is a, an unsimulated scene of fellatio. That's what it was known for. There's some on-screen sex. That's it. Wow. And uh, so uh, when it showed up on Ovid, though, I kind of stroked my chin and said, wait a minute, is there something to this or was it just the fellatio movie? So I, I uh, got to you know, dig up all these movies from my childhood about the Italian fellatio movie. And I finally got to see it. Uh, it turns out there's a lot, a little bit more to it than that. Although <laughs> maybe not much more. This is, uh, <laughs> this is not, it's kind of frustrating because this is not that interesting a film. Uh, Aww. it's about, uh, it's about a high school student who, uh, sees this beautiful woman out his classroom window during an incident where, uh, somebody is threatening to jump off of a roof nearby. So he sees somebody, uh, like crying on a roof and she's about to, to jump off and everybody's yelling, don't jump, don't jump. And during this scene, he sees a, a, a character named Julia and he becomes infatuated with her just from afar immediately. And he ends up getting on his bike and stalking her. And she goes down to a courthouse where her fiancé has been uh, imprisoned for his political views. And in the courtroom scene, we get to see kind of how everything in Italian politics is a complete farce. He uh, is still infatuated with her. The the fiancé character, who we only ever see in that courtroom scene, is just sort of sitting in a cage in the courtroom, and he's eating. It's like he doesn't really even care that he's there. And the fiancé's mom has agreed to give housing to the Julia character. And the the main character, the high school student, ends up approaching her. They end up just sort of, without even communicating a lot, just sort of falling instantly in lust. And in this grand explosion of uh, defiance of everything, decide to have this really torrid affair. And the whole movie is just about their torrid affair and how they are sneaking around in this free apartment that has been gifted to Julia, having sex day and night. And and it just goes on like that. 
un- until uh, until the the final the the final like ten minutes of the movie where she uh, where the Julia character is finally reunited with her fiance and finds that she's not really attracted anymore to anybody who has any kind of direction in their lives. It's about uh, and this is incredibly European, this idea that being directionless and being full of ennui is the most take romantic thing you can be. Yeah, so take a drink. I'm going to say, because this, golly, this is nothing but ennui. This is a ennui sandwich. Uh, this is just living in complete excessive hedonism, and the whole point of it is to not have a point. And I think that's not necessarily a very interesting message. I feel like the characters are a little bit lost to the point where even we, the audience, don't know what we're supposed to think about them. Uh, and, you know, the, the sex is pretty expl- is plenty explicit, and yes, there is some unsimulated sex in the movie, but it's more just part of their journey of ennui, of sex is great mm. and there's nothing else, man, but maybe there is something else, but we don't know, man. And it it feels actually really immature. Uh, but it, it was... Uh, Devil in the Flesh was made by a, a, an Italian director named Marco Bellocchio, uh, who I have not seen uh, any of his other films. He did films with names like uh, uh, China is Near. He did A Leap in the Dark from 1980. Uh, he did a version of Henry IV, which I'd be interested to see. Um, that is Pirandello's Henry IV, not Shakespeare's Henry IV. Uh, and I'd, I'd be interested to see a little bit more about his filmography because maybe that would shed a little bit of light as to this weirdly textureless film. Uh, what I did want to talk about, though, was the use of sex in movies. This came out in 1986, and this is the same year as Blue Velvet, which was a pretty sexually explicit film, and uh, Henry and June was floating around at the same time. There's always been a conversation in cinema, especially here in the United States, about the use of sex on camera. Uh, is is it something that can be done artistically, or is it only going to be included for prurient reasons? And mm-hmm. uh, and can it be displayed in such a way that isn't just you know uh, 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 how how to put it objectifying the exactly the, the people yeah. in it. Yeah, yeah. Is is it is it there to tell a story, or is it there just to just to be blunt about it to make you horny? Uh, it's kind of difficult to suss out this conversation in the modern era of the internet because of websites like Mister Skin that specialize in taking all nudity and all sex scenes in any movie and presenting them compiled out of context. They're essentially turning it all into pornography, and it doesn't matter how how well it's presented to you in a piece of cinema, a lot of actors and a lot of filmmakers are now really aware of the fact that no matter how tastefully they present sex uh, on camera, it's going to be taken out of context. There are people eager to take it out of context. Uh, and as such, I feel like a lot of modern cinema has been really tetchy about including sex and sexuality. Uh, that is... Uh, brazen forward actually depicting it on camera and i think as such and uh william and i had a a conversation about this recently i think it was on one of our letters episodes 
about how a lot of mainstream cinema in the United States has been desexualized and how the, right. the, the sexual experience, a very important human experience, I would say, is not It's the reason we're all upon. here, folks. <laughs> Indeed. And I think, you know, sex and sexuality is a big part and everybody has a sexuality or a sexual identity. And if we're not going to display it or talk about it incredibly frankly, then it may as well not exist. Uh, you know, the only thing that exists in a movie is what's on camera. Subtext is important, yes. Context is important. But we also need to understand that we need to talk about it and put it forth. And I think when, you know, a horny filmmaker comes forth and just starts putting a bunch of sex up on camera that they're they're at least doing something. They're at least saying something. They're at least depicting a, a very vital part of human communication. Uh, I'm trying to think of the last film I saw that had something just really, really explicit. I know Lars von Trier did it in his film Nymphomaniac, another five-hour film. Uh, I, I saw the first part, and I was like, I think I'm good. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean... You have to be on that film's wavelength. I think it's really, really great, uh, except for the end. The end just completely screws that movie. Uh, uh, Ang Lee's Lust Caution was another one. Uh, there's unsimulated sex acts in the film The Brown Bunny, uh, and I can argue with you about The Brown Bunny. It actually does a lot of things right and a lot of things wrong. Uh, Blue is the warmest color. Um, oh, that filmmaker, Abdelatif Kachiche, is mm. notorious for his... Um, sketchy use of uh or or sketchy he uses a lot of explicit sex stuff in his movies and Mm. especially in his most more recent work has gotten to do it has gotten to depict it through sketchy manners by like literally getting his actors drunk out of their minds Mm. for his more recent film and that's i mean i i don't blue is the warmest color would be a decent film if you took out all the explicit sex stuff that the actors weren't really comfortable doing um, yeah, and, and the uh, I I didn't and I didn't read about that until after like almost a year after the film was made. It's like oh, and so I called it one of the best films of the year, and I felt at the time that the sex was like actually, it won the Palme d'Or, I think. Yeah, it, it won the Palme d'Or, and it was. Uh, it, I think in showing like how explicit the sex was, it was trying to show us that it, this is actually very very good for both of these characters that they're having very very good sex and it's pretty wild for them and they're doing all these things that one of the characters at least had never done before and uh, yeah then I learn like a year after the fact that oh wait they were kind of coerced in kind of an unhealthy way into doing these sex scenes like oh well that make I was hoping that they were doing these ethically and it turns out they weren't so that that casts a pall over something like blue is the warmest color uh I I try to give films the benefit of the doubt if there's going to be explicit sex on camera I'm going to assume that they were doing it uh completely on the up and ups and everybody was comfortable but I know that's not always the case. Yeah. Uh, I don't know uh if the two actors in uh in Devil in the Flesh uh said or anything about it after the fact. Um but you know it, it seems like everything was on the up and up in something like Devil in the Flesh. Yeah. Uh, the 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 infamous fellatio scene it isn't all that long and it isn't all that ex- I mean it's explicit but it's actually presented in this really kind of incidental frank manner and there's some cross cutting and it just it feels like just another sex scene really it's not 
you know, centerpiece to the way it was like in something like the Brown Bunny, where in the Brown Bunny, Vincent Gallo just wanted to show off his own genitals. That's, I think, the only reason he included that. Well, in Gaspar that movie. Noé does it too, and he did it in like Love that he he mm-hmm. had some ex- pretty explicit stuff um, mm-hmm. in Gaspar Noé's Love from like 2015, and then also Climax, which you and I have very different opinions of. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I don't think we disagree on any film more than on Gaspar Noé's climax. <laughs> so I generally consider I, it to be an abomination of a film. I, 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 the fact that it's an abomination is one of the things that I admire about it. But I, I understand that I have very strange taste in some regards. Um, so yeah, Devil in the Flesh, I'm, I'm glad I finally caught up to it, especially given that I knew kind of about its reputation from long ago. Uh, and yeah, I think it is an interesting film about, you know, sex and politics and ennui. Uh, but more than anything, I think it just is a good part of the conversation about explicit on-screen sex. All right. Is it so but as a film itself is it is it how is it? <laughs> I mean, it it's just not ter- of... it's, it's not terribly interesting. It's I I you know, I'd give it like a two-star film. I didn't hate it as much <laughs> as some of the critics at the time. I actually went back and read some of the reviews. I read Ebert's review and Ebert hated this movie. Says so like he he, he ins- insisted that the explicit sex was included just so people would talk about it because otherwise there'd be nothing to talk about in this movie. Uh, <laughs> so he, he actually you know had a very mercenary kind of cynical view of Devil in the Flesh. Um, all right, um, I, I don't think it's as yeah. bad as all that, but yeah, I, I think there's less going on than maybe the filmmakers intended. Okay. Um, if I might recommend a film that has some explicit sex in it, um, that I is actually very very tender and thoughtful and it's one of one of my favorite films it would be uh, a pitchpong where seth equals uh, 2002 film blissfully yours mm. um which is his maybe his most straightforward film um it's just about these uh, uh two this this young couple and this older couple who go out into the woods to like have a picnic and and then they do it and it's it's just very quiet and obvious. I mean, it's it's a weird ethical film, so it's it's going to be quiet and slow oh, yeah. <laughs> and, and meditative, and and there is some explicit stuff, but it's 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 treated as this very tender act, hmm. um, which I thought was like quite quite refreshing to see um, in film. And so yeah, also it's where I learned that in Thailand, uh, Karen has been an insult for a long time. Um, oh. <laughs> at one point, some dude uh, steals a, a, a someone. Someone gets a motorcycle stolen, and they're going. It's like you blanking Karen. Like they say it in English. Like they're speaking Thai, but then they'll say Karen. Um, oh and then gosh. at one point, it's like, did you get lost in the forest? It's like, no, I'm not a Karen. And I was like, what in the world? Oh, <laughs> I was great. watching this last year. Is obviously all this stuff was happening. Karen went into the mainstream. I was just like, here's a film from 2002 in Thailand doing the same thing. <laughs> um, <laughs> Anyway, I love it. All right, um, so we're at let's see here at fifty-two minutes. I don't know. I uh, I also watched uh, the first Best of Fest series, which uh, the Best of Fest series. There's two of them on Ovid right now. There are these series of uh, short films that are all focused on dance, mm. um, in one form or another. And so I'm just gonna go through them pretty quickly. Uh, maybe have a couple observations on them. There are let's see here one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight of them in the first run. And so we've got, we have, the first one is called Four, 
um, just the number four. It's from uh, directed by Mariana Palacios, and it is it, this is probably out of all of them the least interesting, or in, at least in terms of presentation. It's essentially just a music video of these four people on a stage, and this this could be something that you just watch in a museum. Mm. Um, but it's it's these two people that are working with they essentially they're working with one grand piano and are making all sorts of different types of sound with it they're like they're playing the keys but also plucking the strings they have xylophone mallets that they're using they have hair from a from like a violin or viola bow that they're running through the strings so they're making all this music and sound and and it's very 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 interesting music and then also two dancers with these very avant-garde modern movements but in terms of presentation it's not really that uh spectacular it really just does look like it's pretty slick it does just look like a music video um so and outside of maybe some extreme close-ups on like different parts of the dancers bodies there's nothing really that you'd get here that you wouldn't get from just watching it as a as a as a live performance Mm-hmm. Um, so there's four. Um, then we have Beast, um, which is filmed, I'm assuming, uh, during lockdown in Brazil of last year. And it's these series of uh, male uh, male uh, uh, dancers or park. They, they, they go to this stadium, this empty stadium, which is... Um, at one point they meant it like there's a title card that it was designed by such and such famous architect but it's this almost like MC Escher like concrete structure and it's mm. them doing parkour and like waving Which, uh, flags what 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 theater is it I can I can look up the architect because well it's it's a it's a stadium it's like a oh, it's yeah. like a football stadium hmm. um, okay um, but uh, let's see here let's see if I can find uh, best of fast beast the architect is Eduardo Soto de Mora. Okay. Um, All right. Anyway, um, but uh, yeah, and so it's it's these men uh, basically doing parkour around all this concrete structures, waving flags. They have these like those cans of smoke, colored smoke that they're waving around, and eventually they get onto the stadium, strip naked, and start humping the ground, thus becoming beasts. Um, it's <laughs> like you do. It's a uh, yeah um it's that one's it's very visually that one is there's a lot of great use of color and movement and just the architecture itself is quite uh uh it really draws you in um Mm. then we have earth odyssey asafa vida or avidan um this is from addy halfin um and beast was uh directed by enrica pina or Pina. There's no Enya, so I'm just gonna think it's Pina. But uh Adi Halfin did Earth Odyssey. What was that? I think it is Pina, yeah. Okay, yeah. So Earth Odyssey Asaf Avida. This is um this reminded me a lot of the homemade shorts that are on Netflix from last year where they had uh various directors, everyone from people like, you know, Kristen Stewart and Maggie Gyllenhaal to Anna Lily Amapur, all of these various different directors from around the world make uh films from inside uh wherever they're locked down um in in quarantine and this is a just a bunch of dancers dancing to a song in their houses and some of them just they don't some of them are by themselves and so the camera is just sitting on the ground some of them have someone moving moving around like the phone that they're carrying um and it's just this expression of joy um it's this really upbeat song and the dancers are all clearly having a great time uh uh 
whether it's they're practicing or just they're they're performing and for an audience of themselves in their house and and i that that was probably my favorite of 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 these films is just this people dancing in their homes having a good time um <laughs> it's a good film then we have then itself. we have yeah uh then we have escape from uh heidi duckler uh this is uh, a chilean film and this one opens with footage of arnold schwarzenegger uh talking about uh the virtues of capitalism and what it uh, okay and then we cut to people dancing in the wilderness and so we're like what's going on here and we over the course this is this one uh over the course of this 14 minute short we get um gradual inter like interconnecting of like story of like these a lot of capitalist messaging that influenced chilean politics and eventually led to like military uh uh brutality in Mm. in chile and and it's these um three dancers uh basically almost like telling the story of that in this very abstract way and leading up to the pandemic and it's it's a it's a political statement mm-hmm. and and it's it, it was fascinating to watch because like just you know Arnold Schwarzenegger showing up is just talking about how he was freed by able to be come to America mm-hmm. and and yeah that that was that one was that one was fun um, so we we get uh, we get Marcos and we get Pinochet on this episode yes um <laughs> Then we have uh, liminality. Uh, this was maybe this is probably my least favorite of of the shorts. It's a woman dancing underwater, and that's that's mm. all it is. It's seven minutes of her dancing under this water in this very frilly dress as the current like pulls her along, and she's making all these movements. Um, there's nothing really wrong with it. It's just it's this one is very very clearly amateur. It's like literally like the credits look like PowerPoint slides mm. in like the animations. Like it looks like it took. 40 seconds to do the credits for this film and then there's a quote from like Mahatma Gandhi um it's it's probably least the works um the the movement the dancing is is nice but that's there's not really much more than that and her being underwater it's actually a retelling of of the Odette um from Swan Lake Mm, and as she's drowning like it's it's her contemplating that place between life and death um you don't none of that really comes across but but there is there is there is definitely some some valuable performance we have sedimented here um from rachel barker and these are three i believe yeah three dancers in uh utah out in this vast canyon and it's them dancing around the wilderness and actually the all of this music is the sounds of this canyon like the sand and the rocks and the water and and it's and it and it creates kind of this cacophony of of percussion mm-hmm. that accompanies their dancing in these wide vistas of of the canyon. Um, it's 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 all right. Then we have traces. This is the only one that I could find on Letterbox that's uh, that's that is has sort of any. Uh, uh, this is the most known, I think, of these shorts, and it's the only one with a narrative. Um, it's about two dancers it's from director alex merle it's these two dancers um who share the same apartment but at different times of day like one of them lives there during the night and the other one lives there during the day and over the course of the film they start leaving objects for each other 
hmm. and they start to getting get to know each other and start to have this desire for each other even though they're never interacting and so the dance is an expression of that and it's it's quite good um it's 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 simple and it and it it's everything comes across really well and then finally uh where the spiders live uh from holgar uh uh, uh milhaupt is um is just a dude dancing around a abandoned uh warehouse in i think scotland <laughs> i love your descriptions of these things and there's somebody just sort of dancing at home and there's somebody just kind of cavorting about a warehouse and, and yeah, it somehow I, ties into chilean politics yeah there's these all of these films um as when taken as a whole it's just it's various it's using dance and movement to express different ideas whether that is a narrative or that's a political Mm. statement or an interpretation of literature or an exploration of architecture or um uh uh, just a a pure performance piece or expression of freedom despite your being in quarantine Mm. um all of these these various uh shorts whether whether or not they're in totally engaging or visually appealing they're 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 little expressions of of something that really is unique to humans this this concept of just of of dancing mm. um i mean like yeah birds do it too but but we <laughs> we have more we have we have opposable thumbs <laughs> I, I was about to say bird haven't you seen the movie happy feet the documentary film <laughs> happy feet oh <laughs> yes there's dancing in i nature remember all the time. that I remember that film. Uh, that was one of the films that I remember like seeing like as a little kid. Um, and I remember just being wowed by like the images of like the wind over, like there's some gorgeous, gorgeous animation, like imagery in that film. And then the, and then everything with the penguins is just, you know, very like it's, this is from the director of Mad Max Fury Road. It's just, <laughs> that film is so strange. Yeah. Um, and more importantly, Babe 2, Pig in the City. Uh, yeah, uh, but ba- ba- Babe Pig in the City is, I-, I would argue, is actually, like, the more visually dynamic, better directed film than Mad Max Fury Road. It's, like, really? way yeah. stranger. That's right. You're, and I know you're that, not that's, the biggest that's, fan uh, of Mad Max Fury Road. Yeah, no, I like Mad Max Fury Road just fine. Just, I think, uh, Babe Pig in the City is is maybe the more interesting movie. Just putting yeah. it out there. <laughs> okay. Just, just it... t- testing the critical waters, see, seeing how that sounds in my mouth. A lot of people talk about like how like Guillermo del Toro has like two types of movies, like where he mm. has his like his Spanish language, you know, very um, cerebral, mm. fantastical, like uh, uh, myth political statements. Yeah, yeah. yeah, and then he and then he has his giant blockbuster, childish <laughs> splatters of of mm. of giants and yeah, just get- and robots. Yeah, one one where he's talking about Frank. He has the movies where he's talking about Franco, and the movies where he's banging action figures together. Um, right, and Shape of Water. It, you could argue. Uh, yeah, could be, could be then, either one then, of those. But the, we, there's also George Miller, who kind of has that same vibe, where he's either making these really strange little kids' films, or he's making the most awesome action you've ever seen. <laughs> well, uh, may he continue to do both because he's yes. he's proficient at both of those things. Uh, all right, so that kind of wraps up uh, uh, what we've seen on Ovid yeah. the, this past week. What's next? On, what's up next on Ovid for you? Well, uh, 
Ovid like sort of rotates through their library pretty quick uh, so I'm kind of I like to sort of poke around and just see what's new and uh, I remember hearing a lot about a film a couple years ago called You Go to My Head and that just dropped on Ovid so I'll probably try to check out You Go to My Head Um, there's uh, a Chinese documentary called Bitter Money that I've had my eye on Uh, and also uh, one I've been wanting to see that I haven't really gotten around to yet is just a really brief uh, documentary film on H.R. Giger. H.R. Uh, Giger oh, yeah, is, I saw that. yeah, is best. H.R. Giger is such a, a college dorm room kind of artist. Like if you're mm-hmm. uh, if if you're like sixteen or seventeen and you're really into like dark shit, man, then you're into H.R. Giger. He, best known in the movie world for designing the creature in the movie Alien, but also a surrealist. Like did a lot of these kind of industrial sexual images in all of his paintings and he was kind of a weird guy himself who uh Mm -hmm. (laughs) uh, when when his wife died he had her bones laid into pieces of his house that's true uh that's not that's not an apocryphal story like he he actually like shows off up in the archway above one of his rooms yes and those are my dead wife's bones like you're you're one And he, and you know, and he looks he looks like a maniac too. He's like this like hunched over guy with these dark eyes, and he's always staring at you. Yes, I'm going to make these really dark pictures. Oh, look, the babies are being eaten in this one painting. You're really weird, aren't you? Yes. So uh, <laughs> he's he's passed. Uh, he died in in 2014. But yeah, they made a documentary about him near the end of his life called uh, just called Dark Star H R Giger's World. So I'll probably check that one out just for my own edification. Uh, and. All right. See if there's something more to him than just him being a weirdo who designed the alien. All right. Okay. Um, as for me, um, I still have Lost Course, that Chinese documentary that I mentioned last week on my radar. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's a lot of documentaries on here about architecture oh. that I'm kind of fascinated by. Um, uh, there's one called Kochu, spelled K-O-C-H-U-U. Um, which is about a, a Japanese architect. Um, there's, there's actually, I might rewatch a film that is actually very personal to me. Um, it's a film called Tiny, a story about living small, which is a documentary about tiny houses. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is a documentary that I saw when I was like maybe 12 or 13 on Netflix. I just came across it and it inspired a deep, deep love of minimalism in me, nice. which like if for a long time I thought like I'll live in a tiny home I, I don't know if I'll do that at this point in my life but <laughs> but it but it has I, I think I might rewatch it just to go back to like this origin of, of a lot of my like I mean if you look at at how I live like you, you can see this setup right here where I have these two bookshelves and mm. they pretty much account for all of my possessions in terms of like my things my toys yeah. I, I really keep it a, a, a pretty pretty minimal and and i think this i can credit this film for a lot of that and so i might rewatch that um but all right so that's 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 what we've seen on ovid that's that's all about ovid episode two electric boogaloo um <laughs> no no it's it's the desolation of smaug now yes okay you're right <laughs> moratorium um, on electric boogaloo it's it, we now refer to all silly sequels as the desolation of smaug oh yeah because I, I have because the right wing people like took the took the word boogaloo and made it like a supremacist thing uh, yeah, yeah yeah that that's anyway. an, another Screw thing white supremacists <laughs> 
So I was about to say another thing they ruined, but you know what haven't they ruined? It's <laughs> exactly they're they are the ruiners. They, yeah. they you can basically go back through history and like what ruined it? White supremacists. Oh, I see. <laughs> what about over here? Also white supremacists. <laughs> uh, but even that's like centering us so much. Anyway, uh, all right, let's get out of this. <laughs> um, uh, Whitney, you do podcasts. Tell us about Oh, them. golly, do I ever. Um, in fact, I'm going to uh, sign off of this podcast and go to do another podcast. Um, yeah, over on the critically acclaimed network with one uh, William Bibiani, uh, we have so many podcasts. We have uh, podcasts about where we review new films. We have podcasts where we uh, talk about canceled television series. Uh, we have podcasts about Batman and Star Trek and other aspects of popular culture. We have aspe- we have podcasts where we just answer letters and we just sort of talk to our listeners. Uh, it's pretty much all we do constantly. We try to put out like a podcast or two a day. Uh, we-, we will just choke you with our voices. So, uh, yeah, if you want to uh, s- sign in, you can listen to a couple of them for free. If you sign up on different levels of our Patreon, you can get just get more and more of us. So, uh, by all means, that's what we're doing these days. And as for me, we also have a Patreon, um, but we're not, instead of talking about Batman and the Oscars and Disney and everything you've already heard of, uh, we're talking about uh, stuff like uh, Rainer Werner Fassbender and Dorothy Arzner and Lucrecia Martel, all those people that you should have heard of by now. And mm. and worse. And so on various podcasts at the Screen's Margins, we're going through these people's filmographies. And uh, and so that's that's what we're doing with, with various different co-hosts. Um, Patreon.com slash Screen's Margins. You can reach us on twitter at screens margins and uh so yeah that's that's pretty much gonna do it for all about ava this week uh we will see you uh again sometime and thank you very much for listening we know that there's a poll these days when it comes to films to focus only on the big and the mainstream stuff so thanks for spending time with us today here on the margins good afternoon ah.